Open your Bibles, if you have one, to the 23rd chapter of Luke. 23rd chapter of Luke. You'll find the notes in the uh, insert, in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text for this morning written on the back of the notes. This morning, we come to very deep waters indeed. All of Luke's gospel has been heading here to the cross, but most specifically, Jesus' death. In fact, all of human history is seen either looking forward to the cross or looking back to the cross. The cross, and ultimately Jesus' death on the cross, is the center point of all human history. And in our few verses this morning, Luke 23, 44 through 49, we will see the death of the Son of God. So let's read our text and ask for the Lord's help. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Oh, Lord God, we need, we need your help. This, this is the most serious, the most wonderful, and the most terrible, the most beautiful, the most ugly, the most awful and wondrous event in history. Wonderful for the salvation provided. Terrible at the injustice, the wrong, the, your sinless, spotless son who deserves praise and glory and laud and honor is crushed for our sin, for our guilt. And so, Lord, we need your spirit, we need your grace to give us eyes to see this most sacred, this most holy of events and help us in seeing to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at our text this morning in three points, and it's entirely possible we won't get to the end. There's just so much here, but we will dive in. And the first point that Luke draws our attention to is the darkness that covers the land. You see it in verse 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So the first thing we get is the timing. Now, Jewish timekeeping starts with um, dawn. The sixth hour, then, is noon. This is high noon through 3 p.m., which we learn in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, is the hour of prayer. So from high noon to 3, darkness covers the land, which is remarkable. Um, the time when the sun should be at its fiercest in the Middle East, the time when it should be its brightest, its full strength, Fails is the language that Luke uses, and darkness covers the whole land. So we get the timing of the event from noon to three, 
What happens? Absolute darkness over the whole land. Now, we don't know fully what is meant by the whole land. It could just mean the whole area of Jerusalem. I think it means at least the whole area of Israel. But later in Acts, the whole land refers to the whole earth. It is conceivable that this is over all the earth. We simply do not know. What we do know is all of those at Golgotha, all of those at Calvary, all of those in the surrounding region at least, are suddenly immersed into pitch darkness. Unless someone happened to have a fire or a torch nearby, and you wouldn't think those things likely at high noon. So what is this then? Well, some have tried to explain, well, this was an eclipse. And your first blank here, it's not an eclipse. Not an eclipse. It could not have been an ordinary eclipse. For one thing, it lasted three hours, whereas a full eclipse of the sun lasts for only a few minutes. Also, eclipses don't generally result in darkness. Some gloom. But more importantly, we know that Passover coincides with a full moon, which means the moon's on the wrong side of the earth for an eclipse. Now, this is no eclipse. Here, I'll read from a commentator, Philip Riken. The miraculous darkness described in the gospel was a literal darkness with a symbolic meaning. Luke tells us that the whole land was dark for about three hours, from midday to the middle of the afternoon. This claim is repeated by Matthew and Mark. It is also confirmed by other ancient sources. Writing around the year 200, Tertullian confidently informed the Roman readers that this wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. Later, both Origen and Eusebius quoted an account from the historian Phlegon, who described an extraordinary darkness that occurred around the time of the crucifixion. So it's real, sudden, pitch darkness. It's not an eclipse. So what is it then? What are we to understand from this? And some have suggested this means Satan is shown up. After all, did not Jesus refer to this event as back in chapter 22? This is your hour and the power of darkness. And they say, okay, this is to show the satanic victory. No, I don't think so either. You see, there's a long tradition, and I'm trying to think, and I want you to ask this question, what would a Jewish person, what would someone who knows their Old Testament make of this sign? Signs are meant to signify something. What is meant to be signified by utter darkness at noonday? Well, I think the Old Testament gives us some light to shed on this darkness, if you pardon the pun. Um, see, as much as the Lord God is light and in him is no darkness at all, he's the father of lights, physical darkness frequently accompanies him when he shows up on earth. When God enters into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis fifteen twelve, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And that's when the Lord shows up um, in the picture of the burning... Um, um, torch, thank you, going through the severed animals. Also, this is similar to the, uh, to the judgment in Egypt. If you remember in Exodus 10, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch Darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. See, as powerful as Satan is, there's nothing in the Bible that I can find that indicates he has the power to blot out the sun. 
And yet God has this power and has used this power already as a judgment, one of the ten plagues in Egypt. And then when Israel meets with God at Mount Sinai, we read this in Exodus 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashings of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is, here's your blank, supernatural darkness from the Lord. It's no eclipse. It's not Satan. The first thing I think anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament would understand is this is a sign that the Lord God himself is drawing near. And not drawing near for something good and pleasant, but drawing near in judgment. That's your next point C, the significance And I think um, the Old Testament sheds even more clarity on this. Here's your blank. The Lord has come in eschatological judgment. The Lord has come in eschatological judgment. Now, what I mean by that is this. Many times in the Old Testament, it is predicted a day, frequently referred to as the day of the Lord, of coming wrath and fury from the Lord. And the Lord God himself will come to earth and judge mankind. I'll ask you to turn, actually, to the book of Amos. I think the most direct tie-in to this is the fact that Luke tells us when this happens. It is darkness at noon day, which the book of Amos references. Now, we know Amos is talking about the day of the Lord because in chapter 5, he says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? So Amos... It's one of the minor prophets. Chapter 8. Just look at verse 9 and 10. Wait for you to turn there. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. And all your songs into lamentations, I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. I think anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament, when they see the sun blot out at noonday, might draw their attention to that. You can turn back to Luke. I'll read some other passages. It's not just that. You're familiar with the predictions of the day of the Lord in Joel. Joel 2, 10 and 11, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining, the Lord utters his powerful voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? A little later in Joel 2, verses 30 and 31, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then Zephaniah, 
1, 14 to 15. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So again and again, the Old Testament prophets predicted a day of terrible judgment where the Lord God would show up and, and give an accounting, a wrecking, judging the nations in righteousness, a reckoning for man's deeds. And here, Jesus on the cross, at midday at noon, the sun goes out, and anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament would go to their minds here. The Lord God is showing up. We have a new actor on the stage. Now, previously, the people in charge of this event have been the, the officials and the Romans mocking, wagging their tongues. Those tongues are now silent. As a new character enters this drama, the Lord God himself has come in eschatological judgment, point one, as described in predictions of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so what I think this means then, this is, this is huge, there is a day of judgment and wrath awaiting all mankind. Jesus warns the Israelites of his day to flee the wrath to come. John the Baptist, flee the wrath to come. There's awaiting and abiding over man wrath, a day of wrath, a day of the Lord. And symbolically, that is happening. What I think that means then, point two, is the Lord pours out the fullness of his wrath. So the eschatological judgment, the judgment for the end of days, is the final balancing of the scales, the final judgment on sin. And God is doing something like that here. And here's the amazing truth, not on sinful, blasphemous men. You may think there are plenty of worthy candidates present at the cross the mocking priests and scribes, the proud Romans, the blasphemous thief. But God's wrath at this time does not fall on any of them. There is wrath in store for them if they do not repent. There is a day of the Lord yet future waiting for them and waiting for us. No, God pours out his wrath not on blasphemous sinful men at the cross, but point two, on the sinless son of God. You see, justice will be done. There is a day of the Lord, yet future waiting, a reckoning for all men. And you will either experience that yourself or Christ here on the cross experiences that for you. Those are the only options. Um, turn to Isaiah 53. I know we've been going there again and again. But Isaiah 53 serves as a wonderful commentary on this event. In a few weeks, uh, Mitchell McClure will be preaching from Acts 8, and this is the text the Ethiopian eunuch is wrestling over. And we learn conclusively it's about Jesus. So, knowing that, let's read Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4 through verse 12. And what I want you to see in particular is the Lord God pouring out wrath. The agony of the cross for Jesus is not merely the crucifixion. If that were it, the thief on either side suffered just as much as he. Perhaps longer, since 
they were still alive and their legs are broken and he was dead. It was a shorter time for him. No, that's not what Jesus was pleading the cup might pass for. On the cross, this is, this is important. What is the heart of Christianity? What is the heart of the gospel? What is this all about? It is the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus voluntarily receives what we deserve so that we can receive what we don't deserve. God treats Jesus as though he lives our life so that he can treat us as if we had lived his. It's called substitution and atonement. If you have any hope of standing before God, it is not because of your good deeds. It's not because of your church attendance. It's because here on the cross, Jesus stood in your place. Jesus bore your punishment. Jesus received your condemnation in his body on the cross. Let's read. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every when to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, on the cross, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opens not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave for the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. And I believe that when the darkness falls and the Lord God shows up, that is exactly what he is doing. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Not the Romans, not the Jews. Yes, in some sense, the Romans, the Jews, but ultimately, God the Father crushing his son. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now that's, that's the gospel. It's not that you become righteous. You will in time. God will finish what he starts. But God credits you as righteous. God declares an innocent man guilty so that he can declare guilty people like you and me innocent. That is the cross. That is the gospel. That is Christianity. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death misnumbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressors. Back to Luke. At midday there's complete darkness across the land for three hours as God shows up in judgment and wrath 
And God pours out on Jesus the fullness of his wrath and fury for the sins of his people. What you and I, if we had to pay for, would take forever, eternity in hell. Think about that. The punishment is an infinite punishment. Because the one we sin against is an infinitely holy God. And we understand, let me pause, we understand that the, the relationship of the judgment corresponds to the value of the one wronged. It's why if you take a baseball bat and smash someone's mailbox, you only serve a couple community service hours, you pay a fine. Take a baseball bat and you swing it in an equally unlawful way, you break someone's car, you smash their headlights, maybe you'll serve a little jail time. Take the same baseball bat, you swing it in an unlawful way so as to break something you don't own, you break someone's knees, now you're going to serve some real time. You take the same baseball bat and you smash someone's head and kill them, you may get the death sentence. Why does the punishment escalate? In every instance, you've broken something that's not yours with a baseball bat. Because we recognize the punishment corresponds to the value of the object transgressed. When you have an infinitely, perfectly holy God, what type of punishment is required? The reason we wrestle with the problem of God's wrath, the reason we wrestle with the doctrine of hell, is because we have too low a view of God. Everyone in the Bible who begins to draw near to God and understands this does not say, Lord, why are you so judgmental? It's, woe unto me from a man of unclean lips. Or, Lord, why does your wrath delay? How can you endure these these motes of dust blaspheming you? Again and again, as men begin to grasp the holiness of God, their loyalty sides with God in horror against the sinfulness of man. And because God is infinitely worthy, The punishment is infinite. Yet because Jesus is God, he is able in three hours on the cross to absorb the punishment that would take you and me eternity in hell. We would continue drinking and drinking and drinking from the cup of God's wrath and never get to the bottom. And Jesus drinks it to the dregs. This is what he was terrified of in the garden. This is what he was pleading with the Father to let pass. God pours out the fullness of his wrath, not on sinful men, but on the sinless son of God. That is what is taking place on the cross. That is what is symbolized by the darkness. That is why. This is the basis. This is the hope that you and I have of standing before God and not being condemned. It's not because we do good things. It's not because we try hard. It's because this one stood in our place. It's it or nothing. And we begin to see, even here in this text, some of the consequences of what Jesus has done. We read in the next verse. We move to our next, next point, the consequence. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And again, that's another symbolic act with huge implications. If you think of the temple and the whole holiness code of Israel, it's a series of markers, demarcations that set aside God as holy. And so if you want to go to the temple, first you got to be clean. You got to do washings. You can't be unclean. Then if you come to the temple, you can only come so close. First is the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles who are God-fearers, they can approach, but only so far. Then there's the court of the women and children. They can get a little closer. The court of the men. Then there's the holy place where the priests serve. But separated from the holy place 
with a curtain is the Holy of Holies. That's where Yahweh resided visibly in the Shekinah glory on the bema seat, the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place where one man, the high priest, once a year for a few minutes would tremblingly go in and sprinkle blood on the altar and on the, the Ark. And the whole point of the holiness code is God is holy and you are not. And so if you want to approach him, you need to go through a series of, of, of cleansings. You can only come so far because he's holy and you are not. And because of Jesus' death, um, this, this curtain, which symbolized that separation, it separated the holy place and the holy of holies. And you can read about it in Exodus 26. Jesus' sacrifice has provided us access now, we're guessing most of us in this room are Gentiles. We, we can get closer than the court of the Gentiles. We can get closer than the court of women and children. We can get closer than the court of men. We can even get closer than the priests. We have access into the Holy of Holies because of Jesus. Listen to the, the commentary the author of Hebrews gives on this. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And then Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since you have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is, this is the amazing reality. Was Jesus' sacrifice sufficient? Was it enough? I mean, two other men are crucified. Does God accept their death on some sense on our behalf? No. Jesus' death is sufficient. The Father does accept it. How do we know? This symbolic tearing of the temple indicates there is now unfettered, unrestricted access to the Father through Jesus. The picture is this. Jesus tears down this dividing curtain. Jesus enters in, and he bids us to come in with him. And when we come before the throne of the Father, the mercy seat, we have our Savior there. And in case you're terrified to draw that near, and you should be if you're sane, that's a terrifying concept. Our righteousness himself is present there. And he bids us come. He says, in me, trusting in me, you can come. You can, you can call him father. It's just an absolutely mind-boggling privilege. All of Israel for hundreds of years is, is getting so close, but not too close, and certainly not without going through the proper um, washings and rituals. And Jesus, because of his death, because of his satisfying of God's wrath, tears the curtain and bids us enter clothed in his righteousness. You bet the sacrifice was sufficient. You bet it was accepted. The consequence of Jesus' death is that Jesus' sacrifice provides us access. And again, this indicates how we draw near to God. You don't draw near to God through your good deeds. You don't draw near to God through your obedience. Those are, those are good things. It pleases God when his children try to obey. It pleases God when his children walk in faith. You draw near to God on one grounds and one grounds only. This sacrifice 
this means of access. Which then brings us to Jesus' last words and last breath. Darkness over the land for three hours. The Father pouring out his wrath for our sin. The payment accepted, the curtain torn, access granted. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And I want you to see here, I think Luke highlights for us, Jesus fully entrusted himself to his father. He fully entrusted himself to his father. Turn to Psalm 31, is what Jesus quotes. It's amazing. Jesus' entire life is in fulfillment of scripture, but even his death, even his dying, is according to the text of God's word. He's speaking God's word. Or as I like to think, the Lord God in his kindness to his son caused a song to be written to give words to his anguish as he died. There was a psalm for Jesus to sing, words for him to speak that were fitting in his dying moments. Psalm 31 is a psalm of David. Verse 1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. So David is crying out for help. He doesn't want to be put to shame. He wants deliverance. He wants to be spared shame. He wants to be delivered. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. For you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Here's the irony. David is calling out for deliverance. Jesus, just a few hours earlier, called out for deliverance. And the answer was no. Jesus asked that the cup might pass. And the Lord sent an angel to strengthen him, but the answer was no. And yet Jesus will entrust himself, entrust his father to the bitter end. He has fully entrusted himself to his father. Point one, he's entrusted his life to the father. I mean, think about that. We, we wrestle with trusting God with things, our money, trusting God with our, with our lives, with our marriages, with our kids. Jesus fully entrusted his entire life to the father. And we, and we read in Luke 22, when he came to that place, he said, pray that you may not enter temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus ultimately, everything in him says no. I don't want to feel guilt and shame. I don't want to feel your wrath. And at the end of the day, Jesus entrusts and trusts his father. He has entrusted his life to the father. And now, passing from life to death, he entrusts his death to the father. And again, this is complete and total trust. Just as David and every saint before had to trust that God would be faithful, God would not let them rest in the earth, but he would raise them. 
Just as there is a resurrection for all mankind, Jesus trusts himself and his death to his father. He has entrusted his death to his father. He has entrusted his life to his father. And we see Jesus to the very last step of his course is faithful. Jesus to the very last step of his course is looking to his father's will, his father's pleasure. He has fully entrusted himself to his father. Even when his father says no, he trusts him and obeys him and submits to him. It's fitting. These are Jesus' last words. And then, and Luke says it in a sort of poetic sense, he breathed his last. But make no mistake, make no mistake, he dies. He dies. Jesus here is dead. And we know that's not the end of the story, but before we jump to the resurrection, just let that sink in. The one who is the author of life is dead. The one who is the light of the world dies in darkness. The one who is sinless becomes sin for us. The one on whom the Father takes perfect delight bears his fierce fury and wrath. Jesus dies. It's one of the points of it being three days to the resurrection to prove that there has to be any shadow of the doubt that Jesus just swooned or passed unconscious. He's dead. He doesn't cease to be. He's going to be with the thief in paradise that day. But Jesus, the man, is dead. He won't stay dead, but he's dead. And it might look for a brief moment as though the plan has failed, but we know this is exactly according to plan. As early as Luke 9, Jesus says this, Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. This brings us briefly to the response. Three witnesses are present. Three groups of people witness the death of Jesus, the supernatural darkness. First, we have the centurion. Verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The word for innocent there, it could equally be translated righteous, just. Certainly this man was innocent. Now this is the seventh time in this chapter that Luke has had a third party declare Jesus innocent. You get the point that he's trying to make to Theophilus. Yes, he suffered the death of a criminal. Yes, he suffered a death Reserved for the worst offenders. He was innocent. Pilate said so repeatedly. Herod said so. The centurion said so. This is the seventh and final such pronouncement. And Luke has been emphatic on this point. He is sinless. He is innocent. He did nothing wrong. Even as the thief on the cross pronounced him innocent as he confesses his own guilt. We're guilty. Yep, we deserve this, not him. The seventh and final such pronouncement. And amazingly, and, and, and the other Gospels, I think, shed some more light into the centurion. But Luke here indicates that in this pronouncement, he, he praises God for what he has seen. The centurion saw what had taken place, praised God. 
And so the lights are on for the centurion. He, he understands, because you'd think, if all he thought was Jesus was innocent, then you'd think, this is awful. This is a tragedy of justice. Now, the other Gospels shed light on this, but the centurion understands Jesus' innocence, and yet he sees something in the death of Jesus praiseworthy to God. I think if you're a Christian here today, you, you, you share that same sentiment. Praise God. This is horrible. This is awful. It's unthinkable. And praise God that there is a substitute for our sins. Praise God that Jesus was sinless and bore our wrath. And Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them if they know not what they do, is again partially fulfilled even here. As another one sees and understands and trusts. Now we turn to the crowds. They'd come out to see a show. They'd been mocking. Their tongues were wagging. They're, they're silent now. Another insight, I think, in understanding how I've read the darkness and its significance is the response of the crowd. I think they get it. I think they get the connections. All the crowds that had returned, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. The crowd lamented in remorse. I say remorse because it's not clear they're repentant, but they recognize something horrible has happened, and they're scared. And this beating of your breast indicates woe, lamentation, remorse. Listen to Isaiah 32, an oracle against um, some of the rich at ease women. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grapes Harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip, make yourselves bare. Tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. And beating your breasts, returning home is just, just mourning, wailing, lamenting. And perhaps for some, this is the, the groundwork that lays, is laid for the conversion at Pentecost in about 40 days. Perhaps some of these people beating their breasts in remorse will come around through full faith and repentance a little later in Luke's narrative. The crowd is silenced. They, they, they get that the stole has been, the show has been stolen from them. God showed up, something awful, terrifying happened, and they beat their breasts and they go home. And the final thing we read, the final group, is all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And I like to think to some degree that includes us. I mean, as we read Luke's gospel, what are we doing? But we're getting this bird's eye view. We're watching it unfold. Um, and they're watching. Now, they're going to act in the next verses. In five weeks, we'll pick up the story with what they do, how the women go to the tomb, how one of these disciples um, asked to bury Jesus. We'll, we'll see all that. But we have just witnessed in this text the death of the Son of God, the opening of access to the Father. This is, this is the heart of the gospel. This is all that human history has been leading up to and the most single important event in time and space. And I hope you understand that if you have any questions about this, if, if the things I'm saying sound strange, please talk to me. Please talk to one of the elders. Because if you understand anything 
anything, understand this. Understand what just took place in this text. I'm going to call the worship team up for our final song as I close in prayer. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, words failed to convey the weight of what we have just read taking place. How you could pour out your wrath, your fierce anger on your beloved son, and that you might do it for our sake, oh Lord God. We, we grasp faintly. And yet what we do see is gorgeous and beautiful and worthy of all praise. Inhabit our praise. Let us sing of the glory beholding the cross, the glory that took place in this darkness, in this dark hour. Oh, Lord God, all of our hopes rest upon this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.